Well, today we're going to be continuing in our series, exploring the character and the work of God through the passages of Scripture that talk specifically about homosexuality. And as mentioned last week, there are quite a few reasons for us to be talking about that, Uh, not only to equip uh, our church and for the current uh, political debate that we're engaged in our society and the, the no doubt the conversations that many people experience in their workplaces or over their back fences. Uh, but I explained that also we, we need to understand these passages are not just merely speaking about homosexuality. There is a great deal more to them that we miss if we just focus in on a particular word or phrase. And so we began by understanding the framework of the whole Bible, that God is sovereign in his word, as his spoken word and his written word, and in his works, both his creative and his redemptive works, from the opening book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. And that as we submit to God's word and his design for who we are as men and women, uh, particularly in our relationships, we come to understand that that, that design of uh, men and women coming together in the covenant of marriage is actually a reflection of the gospel itself, a, a picture of what the entire Bible is talking about. That is the union of husband and marriage in, uh, in husband and wife in marriage is a reflection of the gospel, the union of Christ and the church. And that's uh, why all uh, sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sinful. Uh, not just a homosexuality, but premarital sex or adultery as well. It's sinful because it fails to reflect properly the source. Because marriage itself is a picture of the gospel and the work of Christ to gain himself a perfect and blemishless bride. Well, this morning we come to Genesis chapter 19 and the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this passage has a great deal to tell us concerning the justice and the mercy of God. Again, something that we miss if we only are concerned with a certain word or a certain phrase. Because in this passage we see a picture of what our sin deserves, each and every one of us. And yet we also see a picture of the mercy that is extended uh, to those who have faith in God. So turn with me to Genesis 19, and we're going to read through verses 1 to 29. Chapter 19 begins this way. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house. 
And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anything else here? Anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So the Lord went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are not here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favour also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow 
when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So that's Genesis 19. And our passage today opens with the welcoming of strangers by Lot. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and this automatically tells us that we need to look further back as to who these angels are and why they had just arrived. It's picking up in the middle of a bigger story, isn't it? So, if you've got your Bibles there, flick back to Genesis 18. And you'll see that in chapter 18, it sets up the whole story. In the first half of Genesis 18, verses 1 to 15, Abraham shows hospitality to three travellers, one of whom turns out to be the Lord, and the other two are angels. And so these angels, manifested as men, come across Abraham's camp and he offers them such hospitality. He, he cooks them a meal and he sits them down out of the heat of the sun. But then in the second half of chapter 18, from verse 16 to verse 33, we see that the Lord reveals to Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their grievous sins. Verses 20 to 21, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, was God unaware of what was happening down in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, of course not. But it's showing us the depth that God goes to, to make sure his deliberations are just, to make sure we know his deliberations are just and that nothing he does is unjust. Well, Abraham pleads for God's justice that he would not destroy the town if there are righteous people found among them. We probably all know this account where Abraham pleads before the Lord saying, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you destroy the town? And then he pushes and he pushes. What about 45? What about 40? Working his way down to 10. What if there are 10 people who are righteous, who know the Lord? Will you destroy the town and them along with it? And then we find in verse 25, one of the most incredible verses in the whole Bible, about God's justice. Abraham, pleading before God, says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That verse right there helps undergird everything we understand about God's justice in the Bible. If God acts, then God acts rightly. And so, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah is all about the justice of of God. And it raises the question, is God a just God? And we know that this is a question that runs throughout the whole Bible, doesn't it? How can God be just and yet justify the wicked? How can he tolerate sin if he is such a just God? Of course, we see that pulled together in Romans chapter 3, don't we? Where Paul says that it's in Christ Jesus and his perfect substitutionary sacrifice on the cross 
that enables wicked sinners to be judged righteous before him. Christ's righteousness imputed to those who believe and our sins imputed to Christ. A perfect substitution. Is God a just God? Is the question that sets us up into the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as the two angels arrive in Sodom, we're about to witness the action of a just God. And these angels come across Lot, who is sitting in the gate of Sodom. See that in verse 1. Now, how did Lot get there? Well, that's also a progression, for he didn't just appear there. So, if you flick back to Genesis chapter 13, in that chapter we see that Lot and Abraham, Abram at that time, had issues sharing the land uh, and all their cattle and stock, um, arising from the need to provide water for their flocks and their herds. And so Abram gave his nephew the choice of which part of the land would be his. And so in Genesis 13, from verse 10 to 13, we read, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It tells us plainly that Lot chose the best land. Well, no wonder, considering the importance of water. But the problem was that the beauty of the land was merely a facade. Uh, it hid the true nature of its residents who were both wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. We then move on into Genesis 14, and we see that there is this great battle that takes place uh, between the kings on the plains. Uh, when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar, Zeboim and Bela, that is Zoah, were defeated, the victorious kings plundered their lands. And then we're told in verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. And so in chapter 13, Lot was living near Sodom. But here in chapter 14, he's moved into the town. How often have we fallen into temptation because we've flirted with it rather than fleeing from it? Our falls into sin rarely happen in an instant, uh, but they are a gradual process. It's not one step and then another. And then suddenly we look back and realise just how far we've come. And so Lot has been captured and then we read that Abram had to rescue Lot. But does Lot learn from this experience? Does he take this as an opportunity to pack up and Get out of Dodge? No, we read in Genesis 19 that Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And this tells us that he was not merely a resident. Uh, He didn't just go back to living there, but he was now a prominent member of the city. 
The gateway was where judgments and dispute resolutions took place. So Lot has progressively moved closer and closer to Sodom to the point now of having some level of authority in the city. But his choices have put himself and his family in a position of compromise and grave danger. Yet, in his actions toward these these two angels, thinking that they're just two men who've rocked up to town, he he does actually reflect the righteous character of his uncle Abram, uh, who also unknowingly had entertained angels of the Lord. Lot's insistence to get these strangers off the street and safely into his house before nightfall shows that he, he understands perfectly well the character of the townsfolk. He knew their nature. He knew what would happen if these strangers weren't helped. And so he welcomes them into his home. But from Lot's welcome, we then see the wanton desires of the men. Turns out that Lot was correct in his move to protect the strangers because in short order, the rest of the men in town, both young and old, have gathered outside his house. Uh, It makes perfectly clear that there were no righteous men in the town other than Lot. Everyone else is outside his house. And it makes perfectly clear that the impending destruction of the town is completely justified. And so these men, they call to Lot, verse 5, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The men of Sodom ask to know the strangers. And in the Bible, to know someone can be related to learning about them. We just saw that in chapter 18, verse 21, about God knowing the state of Sodom. But it can also be a euphemism for sexual relations and intimacy. Genesis 4 verse 1, uh, we read that, God, that Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a son. Now some have suggested that the men of Sodom, they, just, they wanted to interrogate the strangers, to know their true purpose for being there. But there's just no getting around the fact that in this context, to know means that the men of town wanted these visitors for sexual reasons. Indeed, a couple of verses later, Lot's offering up his daughters who haven't known a man. They're still virgins. But quite obviously, and here's where we need to be realistic in this, the men of the town are not interested in starting a loving, consensual relationship with these two strangers. What else can be expected to happen here other than a violent and horrific gang rape? This is not one man uh, rocking up with a box of chocolates and some flowers asking another guy for uh, a date for a dinner and a movie. No, the entire town has rocked up outside the door. There's no intimate experience uh, that they're inviting them into here. There's no doubt that the men of the town were seeking to exert their power over the two strangers, to demoralise them, to to hurt them. We can certainly see this uh, in a connection to what happens sometimes in prisons. Uh, There's a quest for domination and to set up the hierarchy of who has ultimate power and authority. 
But it is this intent of the men that leads people to suggest that the account of Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing at all to add to the conversation of whether it's sinful for two people of the same gender to freely enter into a loving, consensual relationship. Yes, we need to acknowledge that this is an episode about rape, not love. But is it true that this account has nothing at all to say about homosexuality? And I don't think that's right. I think, on the contrary, it has a lot to add to the discussion, as we'll see in a moment. Well, Lot went out to meet, sorry, went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And here we get to the heart of the problem. What is this wicked thing? Well, some have suggested that the men of the town wanted to have sex with angels and in doing so somehow become divine. That's the wicked thing. They wanted to uh, be intimate with angels. But we can discard that straight away because lots and everyone else in the story think they're men. The townsfolk didn't know that the visitors were angels. Okay, well, what about a lack of hospitality? Is the problem that the men of the town failed to show appropriate hospitality and respectful care to strangers, seeking instead to assert their power and their authority over them? Well, in Ezekiel chapter 16, God speaks through the prophet against the people of Israel for their terrible sin and disobedience, and he compares them to Sodom. And he says this in Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel was saying here that the men of Sodom were arrogant, overfed, and they showed no concern for those around them. And so, yes, there is an incredible lack of hospitality among them, and the Lord holds them to account because of it. There really is uh, no doubt that Sodom was a terrible place to be. They sinned against God morally, ethically, economically. But once again, does this mean that Genesis 19 has nothing to say about homosexuality in the way of two people of the same gender coming together in a consensual, loving relationship? Is it true, as some suggest, that absolutely nowhere in the Bible is it ever stated that same-sex acts were part of the sins of Sodom? Well, here are some things to consider. Firstly, you cannot interpret this passage without regard to Genesis 1 and 2, nor indeed all of the scripture that follows. Because God is sovereign in his word and his work, and because God created humanity as male and female with the command that they would join together in the covenant of marriage and produce children. You cannot change any of that. You cannot take it out of that context. 
You cannot change that design that God had for men and women because human marriage, as we saw from Ephesians 5, is actually the reflection of the union between Christ and the church. It's a picture of the gospel. And so you cannot change the reflection because it reflects the source. It gets its meaning from something else. Now, it might seem a noble thing if people wish to focus in on the passages concerning homosexuality without getting bogged down in the wider discussion of marriage. Uh, But to do so is quite disingenuous. It's blatantly sneaky, is what it is, as it removes the biblical framework that this passage sits within. So that's number one. Second, uh, if we take this passage from Ezekiel chapter 16 that we just read, verses 49 to 50, it's important to realise that it is not without reference to homosexuality. While it lists a whole bunch of other things that Sodom was guilty of, they were also guilty of committing a specific abomination, which is the same word we find in Leviticus 18, verse 22, where the Lord commanded Israel, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, It is an abomination. That's number two. Number three, there are two other passages in the Bible that specifically state that part of Sodom's guilt lay in committing sexually immoral acts. I'll mention one now and the other a bit later. In the New Testament letter written by Jude, he warns against false teachers slipping into the midst of God's people. And he compares the destruction that awaits them uh, to the Lord's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jude says this, picking up in a sentence in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now that phrase, unnatural desire, literally means different flesh. We've already seen that the men weren't after a different flesh of an angelic flesh. They weren't after being with an angel. The problem is that they were after unnatural relations with other men. Yes, it's true that the violence uh, with which the men of Sodom were seeking to carry out their sexual deed was wrong. So very wrong. But here's the thing. Even if violence did not play a part, the action still would have been wrong. For a man to have sex with a man is against God's design, no matter what the circumstances. Let me just summarise what we've seen concerning the wicked act of the men. You know, it's actually a helpful critique um, to recognise that there is more going on in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah than merely homosexuality. That's important and helpful for us to recognise. Violence and unwelcoming attitudes are prevalent and in those respects the words are applicable to every single one of us. God's judgement shows uh, that how we treat those around us is incredibly important. Every single one of us can take something away from this passage. However, if in the past our interpretations of this passage have focused on homosexuality, the exclusion of the other sins, 
Well, then modern interpretations uh, have focused on the other sins to the exclusion of homosexuality. Lindsay Wilson uh, is the senior lecturer in Old Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne. And he's commented concerning the wickedness of Sodom. Let me quote him. He says, It is wicked on three grounds. It is a breach of hospitality. It is forced rather than voluntary. And it involves a prohibited form of sexual activity. That is, homosexual intercourse. And so in one way or another, this passage speaks to each one of us. And we should not deny any of those aspects that come out. And so that's the action of the men, but things are a real mess in Sodom. Because look at how Lot responds in offering up his own daughters as substitutes for sex. It's important, as we begin here, to understand that Lot's desire to protect the strangers is actually part of the culture of the ancient Near East. Where hospitality was held in high regard, in fact it was almost the highest regard. And so if anything happened to a guest that was staying with you, uh, it was on you. You were responsible for those uh, who uh, were guests among you. However, instead of calling the men of the town to a higher moral standard and demanding them to disperse and not sin against God in any way, Lot chooses the route of compromise and he used his daughters as unwilling pawns perhaps trying to find a lesser of two evils, although I'm not sure how you find a lesser evil in the midst of this discussion. As Genesis 2 tells us, sex is reserved for the marriage covenant alone. But what we have to recognise is that sometimes a narrative in the Bible doesn't specifically condemn an action, but it leaves the reader to interpret the rightness or the wrongness of it Uh, by the consequences that befall that person. See, at the end of Genesis 19, we see that Lot's daughters turn around and they use him as an unwilling pawn. Uh, They get him drunk so that he can impregnate them without his knowledge. In that instance, the daughter's actions weren't right either. But it shows the mess they've all ended up in. The reality is that if Lot wasn't here in Sodom in the first place, then he wouldn't have put his family in this terrible position. Lot, I think, is an example of a person who has faith in God and yet allows himself to flirt with sinful temptation and his whole family have to deal with the consequences that arise because of it. Has that been you? Is that you? At the moment. See, Lot reminds us that our choices always have consequences, even if we cannot always see that right away. The more that we stray from what God says, the more we find ourselves in compromise and difficulty. The more we find it affecting not only ourselves, but those we love as well. And so while Lot was absolutely right to protect the strangers from the wanton desires of these men, he was absolutely wrong in the way that he went about it. And that leads us uh, to the warning issue from the angels. 
while Lot is trying to negotiate. The men of the town try and push past him, but the angels rescue him and they blind uh, the men. And it shows us that Lot has been right to uh, protect them. As verse 11 makes clear, it wasn't that the men couldn't merely find the door either. No, they wore themselves out groping for the door. The men of the town were so determined to get to these two strangers that they kept at it even after they had been struck blind, kept at it to the point of exhaustion. There is a desire for sin, if ever we've seen it. But when the angels drag Lot back inside, they reveal uh, what they have come to do. The outcry that reached the ears of the Lord in chapter 18 has now been confirmed by his angels in what they've just witnessed. The Lord will be right in bringing judgment upon the towns and he will be quick in bringing it to bear. Now here again, I want to address that trump card that I mentioned last week that's always presented to silence the debate about homosexuality. That is that Jesus didn't say anything about that. So give it a rest. And ask, really? Really? Last week I reminded you that Jesus is a member of the Trinity. This means that he was sinned against by Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness. And that And while that wickedness included a lack of hospitality and a penchant for violence, it also included homosexuality. This means that Jesus also was involved in their destruction. You must recognise that Jesus is not neutral on this discussion. While the angels warned Lot to get himself and his family out of there as quickly as possible and to get as far away as possible, But there is this meandering that happens. There is this complete lack of complete obedience. Uh, The men engaged to marry Lot's daughters do not take him seriously and they refuse to come. Even Lot himself dilly-dallies and the angels are forced to drag him out of the city and declare to him, escape, get out of here, don't look back lest you be swept away. Once again, how often do we continue to flirt with temptation rather than getting as far away from it as we can? Especially when we know how God feels about sin and that as a just God, he will deal with it. Lot also then quibbles about the escape route and asks the angels if he may not run as far as they suggest. But interestingly, on this last point, the the angels grant this request. Even though Lot's plea is not out of concern for any righteous people in Zohar, he's thinking about his own safety here. Yet in this, we see the character of God in listening to Lot's prayer, even though he was not as blameless as Abraham. And we also see that divine grace is the ultimate basis for salvation. Not human righteousness, not our works. People of Zohar only avoided destruction here because of God's sovereign decision. Nothing else saved them. And so with the warning of the angels given, it clears way for the wiping out of the cities by the Lord. 
We see that is a complete and utter destruction of all life in that region. And what we have here is a small-scale response to the wickedness of men, which is compared to the whole world destruction in Genesis 7. This time it's by fire, not by water. And it is a vivid and terrible picture of what sinful human beings deserve. What each and every one of us deserve. And yet it also shows us how merciful God is that every day he continues in patience to give sinners their very next breath. It reminds us, however, that there comes a point when God will act in judgment. For the people of Sodom and the surrounding towns, it was right there and then. For Lot's wife, it was right there and then. Her life now serving as a warning not to hang on to our sinfulness. Romans 6 verse 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that through faith in Christ, how can we who died to sin live in it any longer? Don't look back. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ, so don't look back to that life that did bring condemnation. The last few verses of this section tie it back to chapter 18 and and tie the whole account together. When it referred to Abraham first surveying the cities on the plain with the Lord, shows us that God's judgment had been correct and true. The people of the plain were utterly wicked, and as divine judge, the Lord did what was right. And yet while the towns were destroyed, we read in verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Lot and his daughters were shown mercy. God did what was right in judging the wicked, showing mercy to the righteous, a righteousness that is by faith, not by works. Because although Lot's actions were not inspiring in the least, right? he's not our moral poster boy, it was his faith in the Lord which saved him. And it's on this point that I would like to bring things to a close. I said before that there was another passage in Scripture uh, which affirmed that sexual immorality was part of Sodom's sinfulness, and yet it also teaches us about the justice of God. In 2 Peter 2, the Apostle speaks of God's historical judgment of the wicked and the protecting of the righteous. And the purpose of this was to encourage believers to stand firm in the truth against the actions of false teachers. In chapter 2, Peter says this in verses 7 to 9. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The phrase sensual conduct in verse 7 means outrageous behaviour. And in the New Testament we find that conduct connected many times with sexual immorality. Even in this section, 
there is a decisive link to sexual immorality, as Peter says in verse 18 of the false teachers, that they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. And as we've seen, the sexual immorality of Genesis 19 was not merely its involuntary nature, but its homosexual nature. But it's not on this thought that I wish to leave us with today. And when we're speaking with people who may experience homosexual desires or speaking with anybody experiencing other sinful desires, for instance, everyone else in the human race, this final point here is the most important thing that we need to be drawing back on. What I want us to recognise from Peter's words here is the gospel. The gospel is the most important thing. It is that human beings are sinful by nature and by choice, and as a result we come under the just judgment of God. Peter is absolutely clear that God will hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. There's no escape for sinners in their own strength. However, it's not by works that we save ourselves from this punishment, from God's wrath. No, it is not us who make ourselves righteous. It is God's work in us through the Holy Spirit that leads us to repentance and faith in the risen Lord Jesus, the righteous one. It was not Lot's own righteousness that saved him, but the mercy of God who drew him to faith. It is not our righteousness that saves us, the mercy of God in drawing us to faith in Christ. This is what we need to be pointing people towards. The mercy of God in Jesus Christ. The account of Sodom and Gomorrah is important not merely for what it teaches us about homosexuality, but for what it teaches in regards to the justice of God. It reminds us that sin will be judged and no one will escape that in their own strength but it also reminds us of his mercy to those who turn to him in faith through his son, Jesus Christ. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We can trust that he will. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a just God. We thank you uh, that because of this, we can trust that all the injustices we see in this world at the moment, will be righted. If you are not just, we have no hope. And yet we also recognise, because of your justice, that we are without hope, because we too have sinned against you. Your justice brings us to our knees. And yet we also recognise that in Christ you have shown your mercy. You have shown a way uh, for the just sorry, for the wicked to be justified. We pray in all our endeavours this week and in the coming months and years, uh, in particular relation to uh, the national discussion on marriage and homosexuality, that you would help us uh, to continue to speak the truth in love and to point people to the one hope that is available to mankind, the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help our lives to be guided by that, to be grounded on that. And may that spring from our lips, from the depth of our heart, in all the conversations that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.